Every week on our regular episodes of Shift Shift Bloom, I get to interview people whose lives are very different from mine. And we talk about how each has navigated the twists and turns inherent in transformation. But I wonder, what's universal about how people change? What are the common threads, the connective tissue? I tend to look at change through the lens of my own experience, for the most part, the artist's life. Lucky for us, my curiosity is shared by the co-creator of Shift Shift Bloom, Dr. John Lyons, luminary and author in the field of clinical psychology and systems change. Who better to help me unpack all the questions that fill my mind when the interviews are over? I'm Kristen Sorelli, and you're listening to Shift Shift Bloom, TCOM Takeaways, my conversation with Dr. John Lyons about a recent interview. John to chat about my interview with DeLacy Davis, founder of Black Cops Against Police Brutality. DeLacy was a fascinating guest, and I love these catch-ups with John because I'm always curious to find out what aspects of change he hones in on. Hi, John. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to hear you again, uh, Kristen, and uh, what a great interview. I mean, what an incredible human being uh, Dr. Davis is. I'm fond of saying it's a work of angels to work with others. He is the essence of that. So, How did he come to your world? So he, uh, I met him through a, a guy named Ken McGill, who worked at Rutgers University. And Ken was responsible for the TCOM implementation in New Jersey. I did a lot of the training. And uh, Dr. Davis became the uh, head of the FSO, the Family Support Organization, in his county, uh, and then became, uh, as you can tell, he rises to leadership, right? He just, uh, mm-hmm. he just speaks to that. Um, and so he took over as head of the, of the whole FS, FSO movement in, in New Jersey, which is the Family Support Organizations, which are designed to support families. So I ended up doing a town hall with him where he hosted, and I, so I met him that way. Um, and then I became aware of all that he was doing. He, uh, we uh, gave him the Outcome Champion Award at the uh, 17th Annual TCOM Conference, and then he keynoted this year. So I've gotten to know him uh, a bit over the last few years. He's quite an incredible person. Was there anything that came up in the interview that caught you off guard? I wouldn't say caught me off guard. I was, you know, that you really didn't talk that much about the FSO. So the part of... Uh, uh, the, the Dr. Davis's life that you did discuss was new to me. So in the sense mm. that I learned a lot about him and his perspective, um, I think uh, was was great. I, and I, I've already known that he's a person of incredible integrity, uh, and it doesn't surprise me that his Meyer Berg would show ethical as, as a leading personality characteristic. Yeah. So I kind of figured that that would be... Uh, uh, across all of his life, but it was interesting to hear and, and hear his perspectives. Yeah, that was a really interesting tidbit that he shared. I never related those two things, the idea of ethics or morality and s- sort of those things inviting conflict in a way. Yeah, I mean, so that actually pretty much guarantees it. I mean, that's sort of like why he had trouble in the police force, because he wanted to do the right thing. 
and not everybody is quite so ethical. So it always causes conflict. I mean, Gandhi has a, a famous quote about that where he says, you know, don't expect gratitude if you're an agent of change, you know, because people don't really embrace that at the same speed that you do. Yeah. I mean, he talked a lot about the different iterations of his life and his career. I think a lot of qualities came out, uh, whether we were directly talking about change or it was just through his storytelling. What are the ones that stand out most to you? And 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 I'm asking that because I'm curious about, he's so dynamic and he's so charismatic that it's easy to kind of sometimes get lost in his persona, in his personality. And I think maybe miss those qualities that he's talking about or miss how it seems like he hasn't had to work to cultivate them. But he really has. The, the juxtaposition of his story to uh, Jordan's story is, is interesting, right? Because mm. Jordan's story, you might be able to characterize as finding oneself. Mm-hmm. With David, you get the feeling that he was born knowing himself and that his, his story is really how he responded to different kinds of challenges within his environment. So it's, his change process is more driven by his opportunities and the challenges that he faced in different kinds of environments just keeping walking forward. So I thought the, dis- the difference between those two stories was absolutely fascinating in terms of that external versus internal kind of process as the driving force of change. I agree with you. It seems like he came out of the womb fully formed or something. Yeah. Um. <laughs> get that feeling that he has that, this innate set of values and beliefs. I mean, one of the things that he struck me, there are many things that he struck me, was the idea that the experience of being black in America is very different than the experience of being white or the experience of being Hispanic, but the truth is the same. Mm -hmm. So although our experiences are different, the truth is the same. And so I think that's a really important message, and I think that kind of captures his um, set of values and guiding principles that are obviously core to how he acts. I mean, the fact that he uh, said he'd adopt that child and then followed up and did exactly what he said he did because one of his values is you keep your word. If you say you're going to do something, you do it. And I can imagine lesser people might be prone to backtrack um, because they come to understand the implications of what they just agreed to do and get cold feet, but not him. Yeah, that was a great moment. I think of spontaneity, the impulsiveness with which he made that offer. It frightened me to hear it. You know, I thought, <laughs> what, were, what were you thinking? And that is kind of astounding uh, to be responsible for the words that come out of your mouth, even if you haven't maybe been thoughtful about saying them before you say them? Yeah, it's such a juxtaposition of his first child, which was <laughs> rather completely planned, right? Yes. Hmm. Yeah, I get the feeling from him too, and he mentions this, about being a creative and about um, not liking, he, he said he likes a lot of things, but nothing, not only one thing, tremendously. And that's funny. I think he also, conscious or not, invites that kind of variety into his life. Right. And maybe it's that kind of variety that actually 
helps him grow and change? Well, if, he's, if he externalizes his change process, that would make a great deal of sense, right? That you would want to, in fact, create an environment that's always challenging you in new ways because that's really, it's, it's responding to those challenges that you have your uh, learning and growth experiences. So it's very different than a kind of a meditative approach of going in and finding the yourself internally, and then that guides you how you make your decisions. It's very much the opposite in that sense. Yeah. What do you think is the line between someone who either chooses or finds themselves in service positions? Because even though he's in leadership roles a lot, he's also in service roles a lot. But then also someone who seems very much in control of change somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the the whole idea of what draws people to service is an interesting kind of question. I think it's probably varied. Um, I do think that there's uh, people, and I would include myself, and in, in that actually get a great deal of sense of accomplishment, a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning by doing that. That I, you know, for me personally, you know, doing things for myself is not particularly fulfilling because mm. it's just not something that excites me. But doing something for somebody else and seeing their reaction to it and their joy from it and that kind of stuff is actually very fulfilling for me. And so I, I don't know if that applies to others, but I do think that there is a, a difference in terms of people who kind of are drawn to helping others and the, the ability, perhaps it's the ability to... Uh, experience mudita, right? The joy of others, right? I don't know. Mm. I mean, there is um, something different. Maybe that's something we can explore over time. Because I think there's also a difference between people who do that in the public sector because they're bound to stay poor versus people who are doing something in the private sector where they can become rich. I'll, I'll never forget driving in the Bay Area during the dot-com boom in the 80s and listening to a psychologist being interviewed on uh, NPR about the sudden, what he called the sudden wealth syndrome. <laughs> what a scam, right? So uh, I'm sure people do have adjustment difficulties by suddenly becoming very wealthy, but, you know, okay. <laughs> so that's your life is to make them less wealthy by having them pay you for therapy, I suppose. But anyway, I, it, it doesn't seem the same as, you know, working in a clinic in, in Newark or working as a, as a community officer in the police force in, uh, in Newark. It doesn't seem the same, right? So you're helping, but there's a much different motivation. So public sector helping, to me, seems rather different because mm. nobody gets rich doing that. Mm-hmm. So it can't, you can't be motivated by money. So Yeah, I think that was a change, too, that he started out on the police force to support his music career. Right. That was, that was brutally honest, right? I mean, that actually was surprising. I, I don't know why people choose the police, but uh, I would have never thought it was your square job. So it seems like a pretty tough square job, right? So, yeah. I mean, do you know any actresses or actors that uh, become police so that they can support their acting career? No. Many become, I shouldn't say many, I know quite a few who've become um, EMTs and, and firefighters. Interesting. Um, okay. Because of those sort of long shifts and then long days off, yeah, you know, yeah. stretches of days off where you can go on auditions or, or shoot something, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think the early retirement is also something that attracts artistic oh. types where they think, well, I'll put my, my X number of years in and then 
I will, you know, retire and have a pension and and keep acting. Uh, Steve Buscemi, famously, I think, is a, was a was a firefighter, um, as well as an actor. So yeah, there is, but I think you don't. I think you still have to have the desire to do good, to be of service, to to choose one of those as your day job, you know, as opposed to waiting tables or working in a corporate office, both of which I've done. Um, I can't say I ever had the desire to become a cop or a firefighter or an EMT yeah. to support my acting. Yeah, um. <laughs> yeah I, th- I thought that was absolutely fascinating. The other thing that I thought was really interesting, and it was, maybe it's just me, and I was incredibly naive, um, but I thought, you know, hiring more uh, African-American police would, in fact, help with the discrimination problem. And if you listen to Dr. Davis, the answer is no. It has really nothing to do with the racial status of the police. And so making the police more diverse doesn't address the fundamental issue. And it sounded mm-hmm. to me, and, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, it sounded to me like it's the power differential issue, is that in certain circumstances when there's a significant power differential that people struggle with not over seizing the power and that's where violence comes from mm-hmm. you see the same thing in relationships among athletes where there's you know a lot of reported domestic violence but if you mm-hmm. think about it, there's an amazing power differential between a very wealthy athlete and people who are hanging out with them you know they're, mm-hmm. they're people. And that kind of power differential creates, I think, problems in relationships. And so it strikes me that the police issue, the police violence issue is that power differential, uh, not so much the uh, racial equity. And it just happens because of other systemic racism that African-American males in particular, but also African-American generally, are in a lower status position in our society. And Mm -hmm. so they're greater vulnerable because they're a greater power differential from the police. So I, I was just struck by that. It's just, it's, it, that surprised me. I, th- I think going back to your very first question, I think that piece of it surprised mm. me. Yeah. I, I made an assumption there as well when I was reading about him and doing research that he founded Black Cops Against Police Brutality because of racial uh, injustice. And really, it was really interesting to find out that the several times things came to conflict, violent conflict, it was with other black officers. I wonder what more he would, he would say about that, about what, about what you've just said and about power. Well, maybe it's a follow-up interview because I'd be very curious to see what he'd say because I, I I was just reacting to what he was talking about and that's what it sounded like to me, but he would know far, far more clearly than I because he lived in that space. I didn't ask him this, but I also wonder if he feels like clearly he felt that his time on the force changed him. I wonder if he felt like he has had significant impact on the system. That's interesting. That would be an interesting question. For uh, I think the, the one thing that he did say that talks about that kind of ripple effect of your own change is the story of his of his first adopted daughter and the impact that had on his biological daughter, right? And so when you make a change, it actually creates these ripples that go throughout your rest of your life and other yes. and it does change other people. So it's yes. it's a rather interesting and complex network of how the these events 
some of which you're in control of and some of which you're not in control of all have implications for for how your life evolves, how your how your journey changes. Yeah, I think we all pay that lip service. Like we know when we're about to make a change, it might have impact on other people, but I don't know. I appreciated the way he framed being sort of the, the space holder for his children and really getting underneath what they needed to make changes and how his changes were affecting them, how they were affecting their their needs to make change in response to his changes. I think that takes a lot of self-awareness and honesty and willingness to kind of stay in the ring, which we did, that did come up in our conversation, this idea of, of staying in the room. In, in the slop, right? I think you called it once. In the slop. Right, just staying in there, that you have to stay in there. I think that's, that's really a fundamental lesson, is you just have to stick it out. Yeah, and do you have to have discipline in order to stick it out? Like, is discipline a critical key to sticking something out? Or <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. I mean, maybe that's one way to frame it, but it could be courage. It could be not mm-hmm. having any other choice, right? I mean, so there's a number of different reasons why you might stick something out, right? So I think we attribute it, it you know, externally. We look at it and we yeah. can attribute it to discipline or courage or whatever. But it's really, I mean, there's thousands of reasons why you might choose to stick in a situation. And chances are it doesn't always work out, right? So yeah. you know, figuring out when you have to take care of yourself and when you're kind of thinking of yourself in this larger network, I don't think that's an easy set of choices. I think it's easy if you're a parent, easier, mm-hmm. because you're a parent, you're, as he said, you know, I think one of his best quotes is, I'm always your dad, <laughs> right? So, you know, that, that's just how it works, right? And so yeah. I think that's sticking it out. It gets more complicated in other kinds of relationships, like work relationships or romantic relationships and so forth, mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah, I want to look for that as we go along, this idea of, like, why do, why do individuals stay in different situations? Because that is related to change, too. Absolutely, right. Either way, you get change, right? You either yeah. get change because that, that relationship evolves, or you get change because now you're doing something entirely different. So, We're... Were you surprised, are you surprised that he's stayed in systems? I think, no, I think actually that's where he belongs. And I Mm. think he he is driven by his purpose. And I think that's an absolutely beautiful thing. And I I would like to believe he'd be unhappy if he wasn't involving himself in systems where there's some opportunity for change. Mm. So as an advocate for parents, I mean, it's pretty difficult to be the parent of a young person who has behavioral, emotional, or developmental, or medical kinds of challenges. It's pretty hard for a variety of different reasons, particularly behavioral health kinds of challenges. It's difficult because mm-hmm. uh, you have a complicated relationship with them. They have a complicated relationship with the school. They might be involved with the uh, other community actors like the police and so forth. So it's pretty difficult. And so that, that he would choose to stay in that fight, I think, is testimony to his character, right? I, I do think that's where he's happiest is, I think, you know, the fact that he, after he adopted one child, he adopted, what is it, three more? Yeah. I think that's testimony to his 
character, his integrity, is his desire to actually make a difference. I suspect he's made a big difference in a lot of people's lives. I know yeah. he's made a difference in mine, even in my uh, limited contact, relatively speaking. Yeah, it was funny. I did ask him what made him happy or what brought him joy. And I could tell that that question took him off guard. And I thought, I don't even know if he registers that. Like, I think it's great that we can pull back and go, this is where he belongs. And he would probably affirm that and say, I belong in systems as a change maker, but not maybe necessarily actually be even thinking about the happiness factor. Well, he might. I mean, I don't know. Be, that would be an interesting conversation to have, you know, to, a thread to pull with, with him in terms of those sets of issues. Because I, I think, you know, different people experience different forms of joy, you know. And then, you know, the more, you know, some style of people, that you don't really jump up and down. You know, this, I think you actually use the term, I'm going to butcher it, senescence, I think. Um, hmm. Your ability to put yourself in your experience. And I think different people are different in that regard. And mm-hmm. so I think as you vary on that dimension, your expression of joy is different. So That's fascinating. Know, I come from a very, um, you know, waspy background. And, you know, the only emotion my father could express was, was mm-hmm. laughter. So if he was happy, he'd laugh. If he was angry he'd laugh, if he was hmm. sad he'd laugh. So that was the emotion he would allow himself to express. And so you hmm. started to listen to the nuances and the laughter to try and interpret what was the actual emotion there. Was there an edge to the laughter, like he might actually be angry or a sarcasm to it? Uh, so I think uh, different people are different on that. So maybe it, it's hmm. hard for some people to even talk about the concept of joy since it's hmm. such a a release of, uh, of emotions. I don't know. I'm just, I'm thinking out loud. I'm maybe projecting my own uh, background. So. Maybe that's interesting though. I, I, when you say that, it makes me think of, you know, they say Eskimos have 200 words for snow or something. Your dad had oh. one response, laughter, yeah. but it had many, 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 many colors to it. Something that I don't, won't say it surprised me, but something that I was really glad he brought to the conversation was the concept of intuition. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think he actually used that word and he certainly used words like clairvoyance and, and mm-hmm. um, you know, get it, getting a feeling. I wonder how many people allow those lesser, let's say, scientific forms of intelligence to influence their change-making process, to influence their decisions, how many people really trust that? Yeah, that's a good question. And where does that happen developmentally? Because I can't imagine that uh, that there's not a developmental unfolding over the trusting mm-hmm. your intuition. I think he used clairvoyance and clairvescence, which I, I, I thought was an interesting distinction. I not, was not familiar with that, but it's an interesting, I looked it up, it's an interesting distinction. So um, I think that that kind of trusting your internal cues to guide you in terms of what's happening in your environment is probably a learned skill oftentimes. I mean, some people are probably a little easier to it than others. In your work, do you listen for that? Like, we're always talking about storytelling and letting people tell their stories and making sure you collect all the different stories in a family system to make sure you're getting the whole picture. Do you hear a lot of use 
of I just had a feeling or yeah people talk about using their gut I mean a lot of where it gets where it gets kind of uh psychologized, um, uh-huh. and I use that in a pejorative, um, would be like psychological mindedness, you know, the idea that you do have these internal states and you use your internal states and you're aware of other people's feelings and emotions and you're, uh, it's like this social emotional intelligence concept that you can, are you aware of other people's feelings, can you feel what they're feeling, those kinds of things, those are mm-hmm. all really important soft skills for mm. people, I think, um, uh, Dr. Davis has those big time. So the, his, uh, I would bet his um, emotional IQ is off the charts. Yeah. Which is fascinating because he's also powerful, charismatic, and he can, he, I mean, I've never seen anybody own a conference presentation on Zoom like he can, which is no small task, right? That's, you're just a little figure on somebody's computer and yet he could, he could own <laughs> own the cloud in that sense. It was really rather remarkable to watch. Yeah, he's firing on a lot of different operation systems, it feels like. It feels like, you know, he's got his intellect, but he's also got this empathy and he's got this amazing vault of stories and this amazing bench of life experiences and all of this intuition. And it just sort of, it didn't seem to bother him at all that the keynote was on Zoom. Right. It was... Really compelling. I mean, yeah. usually I'll get up and leave, you know, or mm-hmm. go get a cup of, you know, cup of coffee or take yeah. a bathroom break. But that keynote was riveting on Zoom. Yep. Well, that's, that's not easy to do, right? Because a large part of what makes something riveting is you're actually connecting to the audience. And so he was actually able to connect with the audience without actually being physically present with the audience. Right, And you don't even, in our Zoom platform that we use, you don't even see most of the audience. You see a small number of people. So he has such a clear sense of how to connect with people that he's able to do it even when that doesn't exist, the feedback doesn't exist. So yeah. I assume like a very good actors on, in the movies have that same sense, although they're interacting with a, another actor at least, which which would have to help. But you do have to kind of have this sense of that greater communication with a larger group of people. It's an interesting skill. I don't. I was quite impressed with that with him. And I wanted to come back to you saying, because I do think that is that is that is a form of intuition. It is a soft skill um, mm-hmm. to be able to create a real feedback loop when there's no real person with you. Right. And I think he did speak into the influence of his mother and grandmother yes. on him. And they created, they they were part of a world of people who had other forms of intelligence. And I think he was exposed to it at a really young age and it was part of his normal, yep. which is, maybe it's not that unique. It's it's just mm-hmm. not, it wasn't, it wasn't, a huge part of my experience growing up. There were there were the grandmothers who had mm-hmm. their special witch, Italian witch, Strega powers. <laughs> but, you know, other than that, it, it, it wasn't a sixth sensory world, a sixth sensory world. It was right. a very five sensory world. Yeah, in fact, mine was ex- even more extreme in the, on the opposite direction, that there was a kind of a denial of all things other than the facts, you know, and so it's, and, you know, no emotion, just the facts, you know, this is, 
probably one of the reasons why I became quite comfortable with becoming a scientist, right? Because mm-hmm. no emotions, just the facts, right? And that was very much a part of our, our culture growing up. So I think that that sense, that emotional IQ of whatever you want to call it is, I think he was gifted that perhaps within his family and actually could mm-hmm. learn to develop, which may, may be one of the reasons why we feel like he was fully formed at birth, right? I mean, because he probably grew up in an environment that that, that was, you know, supported, encouraged, and it allowed his gifts to kind of manifest quickly. Yeah. I think the other other part of our conversation that I wanted to talk to you about was the idea that there's a relationship between rules and boundaries and change. Yeah, I think that's really important because I think as, as, beca- as is becoming clear, Relationships are such a huge part of the process of change, mm. but different relationships are different in terms of their rules and their boundaries, and you have to respect those differences. That's really fundamental. You know, it's, uh, I used to when I was training, I did a lot of work with family therapy, and one of the things that is really fundamental to healthy families is parents need to be parents, and kids are kids. And there are boundaries uh, between parents and kids. And if you lose track of those boundaries, that's just not a healthy situation where you're treating kids as if they're at the same level as a parent, that you really have to have boundaries and you have to have hierarchies and you have to have rules. And that that kind of consistency in expectations is really important. I I find that even in in my leadership roles is that Mm. you do have to have some rules. You have to have some guideposts for people to know what to expect because it makes it more comfortable for them to know what are the the um, what's the structure of this relationship. So I think rules are really important. Now I say that as somebody who probably qualified as an oppositional defiant uh, child, right? So that I fought rules and I, I am well known at the University of Kentucky, even though I've only been there two years, I'm already well known as somebody who bends the rules. But I do really believe in rules, I think that rules are really important. I do think that if you're going to innovate, you have to bend the rules, but you don't want to break them. You want to bend them, and then you see how what happens is you bend them, and that's how you learn to change them, which is the difference between flexibility and adaptability, which I think are both fundamental to change. Tell me, tell me a little more about that. Repeat that, the difference between flexibility and adaptability. So flexibility is adjusting to the circumstance. And adaptability is changing yourself so that you're different, right? And so flexibility is to be a little bit different in different situations. So I think it's quite healthy to be flexible. And then you may or may not choose to be adaptable. Do you need to change? And you can. I think this actually came through in some of what Dr. Davis was talking about. In these different circumstances, different things are happening. He's needing to respond to them within his core ethics, but it requires some flexibility. And then do you... What information do you take from that experience to say, okay, this is what I want to change? I think the adoption story is, is, the, is the best example of that kind of flexibility translating into adaptability. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So it's such a clear-cut example. Do you think this is not, this is slightly off topic, but I'm interested because you, you've brought it up. Have you seen a generational change in parenting where... Um, there are less rules and parents are more apt to treat their children like friends than children. I, I, I feel like I get a little taste of this on social media and 
part of it might be because of social media. Um, but do you feel like there's been a cultural shift in parenting? Uh, not really. I think mm. that there's probably always been permissive parents and there's always mm. been strict parents and uh, there always will be. I think, you know, there's a lot more transparency to how people live um, than there used to be. And so we see stuff. And I think the things that stick out are not, you know, the parents who enforce the rules kind of thing. That doesn't end up anywhere. Uh, but the other ones that kind of stick out, the things are that get noticed in this large, transparent social media bubble that we live in uh, mm-hmm. tend to be the things that are a little different. So I, I just think it's it's not, uh, there's not a real change. Uh, the other thing I'm not sure about is if there's not a sociodemographic factor involved too, that, um, that, you know, I grew up, I was in a one, you know, I would probably say it was lower middle class uh, SES and a lot of rule following there. Um, and as I've evolved in my career, I'm in a different social class, right? And so, and in that more privileged class, I think there is a lot more flexibility than there was in mm. the class. So I think there's a class distinction, a privilege distinction there too. Mm. So I, get, I think it gets pretty difficult to suss out if there's actual trends or not, because uh, I think it's complicated. Mm. But I would, I, my, my, gut would say, no, there's still strict parents and there's still permissive parents and there always have been. Mm. Probably always will be. Do you think differently? Do you think that it is more permissive? You see students, right? So you've seen students now for I see years, students. Right? I think I think you are probably closer to right than I am, although I would I think there's I was very strictly parented. I wouldn't say it was not extreme. Um mm-hmm. There's a sort of Italian Catholicness to my upbringing, um, a, patri- a very strong patriarchal rule rule making to mm-hmm. my upbringing. Um, wait till your father comes home, kind of thing. Yes, yes, very much. Wait till your father comes mm-hmm. home. Um, I feel like I I hear less of that. So so that might be interesting too, because maybe the gender shifts that we're seeing, maybe maybe oh. men are fathering differently than I was fathered. Um, I think that actually is a very. I, I, if if I were to say there's a societal change, I think men are less distant from mm-hmm. the job of fathering than they were in my generation. I think yeah. that I think that you know this is the problem with the boomers is you know we boomers you know. We're actually not that great at dads, um, and I think. Uh, but the, some of the dads that I see that are younger are like, "Wow!" I mean, they're, they're really, really involved. I mean, my yeah. dad, his view was, "I bring home the bacon, and that's my that's the limit of my responsibilities as family." And so I just want to eat dinner, read the paper, watch TV, go to bed, and don't bother me. And so you know, as we got older, he started wanting to have relationships, so we'd go to sporting events, you know, because that would be like a acceptable male activity um but it's not it's just completely different now i mean i see some um, men out in public who are fathers who are just really attuned to their kids and i think that's great so i think if there's anything going on it's uh, men are becoming more attuned to uh parenting than they used Mm -hmm. to be when i was young I'd, i'd say that's good news yeah that it takes me back to dr davis and Right at the top, he he identifies himself as a girl dad, which I just thought was was so sweet. And I think he's got he 
seems to have a really nice blend of being a disciplinarian, but being all in with his heart. Yeah, right. With his kids and. Yeah, he's a great exemplar of a, of a good father, I suspect. Mm. So what's your takeaway? If you, if you had to take one learning from our conversation, my conversation with him, maybe something you'd like to apply or try on or introduce into your life, what would that be? Yeah, actually, I looked up a quote because I knew there was one that reminded me of this, and it's mm. from Gandhi. He mm. said, you must be the change you see in the world. And I think that's Dr. Davis, right? That he lives yeah. his beliefs, and he knows his beliefs, he's clear on his beliefs, he's firm in his beliefs, and he lives them. And he yeah. is the change that he sees in the world, and I think that's just great. I think that's really, really an awesome uh, way of being. So, so I, I think agree. that's what strikes me the most. The other thing that, that struck me, uh, parenthetically, is... And this is sort of, he talked about it, but not directly. It, it seems like in the U.S., the issue of race and discrimination is laid on the backs of people in the minority to deal with. But the actual problem is among people like you and I, Kristen. It's a, yes. it's a white person problem. It's not yes. a black person problem. It's not a brown person problem. It's a white person problem. And if yes. the white people can't get our act together and stop discriminating, stop being hateful just because of the color of people's skin or because of false beliefs about differences, then we're not going to solve this problem. And so I was struck by that because, you know, we do a lot of work around equity and and so forth and trying to be inclusive. And I think that's a piece of the puzzle. So the other quote that, so Harry Chapin, um, is one of the artists that helped me survive adolescence. Mm. But uh, <laughs> he has this song called Night That Made America Famous, which, which mm-hmm. if our listeners have not heard this, you should listen to it. If you listened to it a while ago, listen to it again, because it's mm. as contemporary now as it was 40 years ago when he, when he wrote it or when it was. So there's a line in, in that song. It's funny how when you get that close, it's kind of hard to hate. And I think that's another message that he communicated is if we can learn to talk to each other and understand our different stories and perspectives, then that begins to a little bit of the time wear out the hate. I do think that the pandemic has actually fueled greater mm-hmm. hatred because it's limited contact and people mm-hmm. pulled back to themselves. And the best mm-hmm. way to not hate others is to know others. And if you never, it's not coincidental that the people in the United States who are most against immigration are the places that have the least amount of immigration. And the places that have the most immigration don't have any problems with immigration, Mm -hmm. guys, because you're close to it. You see it and you say, this is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But if you don't see it, if you don't know it, then you can hate it. And it's perfectly acceptable to hate it because you just simply don't know it. And so I think that's really an important message for us as the white community to reach out and get to know people who are different from us so that we can understand that perspective because the perspectives are quite different. So I also found that yeah. piece of his discussion. So I, you know, initially I thought, oh, I'm going to feel a little uncomfortable to uh, white privileged people talking about Dr. Davis uh, behind his back, you know, the, what, what the two of us <laughs> yeah. are doing, yeah. right? And so, but at the same time, 
I think his message was, is you people have to get it together, right? I mean, fundamentally, this is on us. Listening back, because I've gotten to listen back to the ep- episode a few times, mm. and I've, of course, been a part of the editing process where you have to choose mm. what stays in and what goes. And yep. his perspective on race in America is so moving and I mean moving in the way that it moves it moves you it moved me as a white listener to mm-hmm. do do better be better and this is what I pulled from him too what really inspired me was I asked him what hasn't changed about DeLacy Davis in, in all the changes he's faced and he said his willingness to risk it all to take a principled position and I thought you know if I would do that more I would be much more powerful of a person than I am. And I don't mean that to down myself. I just mean if I if I took a lesson away, which kind of rolls all of what you just what you just shared into into how I feel about what he moved around in me. It's that thing. It's that we we don't risk enough. And and just like you said about you know diversity, equity, and inclusion, it that keeps falling on on people of color too. Right, we're, right. We're, you know, and it's like right. no, we we have to get to the table with them and do better and do more and do alliance more of the work. We have more of the work to do right. than they do. Absolutely right. Um, so yeah, this is a it's a such it's a great interview. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he is right. a great is. treasure trove of. Oh, yeah. I don't even want to call it information. He's just... Insight, wisdom. Yeah, and he really, um, he doesn't pull punches. And that's what I really appreciated in, in, in uh, his answering, you know, the questions about Derek Chauvin and all of the stuff he's gone through. He really tells it like it is. Yep. And yeah, he definitely calls it like he sees it, which is, yeah. that's something that you treasure. Yep. Because you know exactly where he stands. Yep. Yep. We, I'm sure there are so many things we didn't get to touch because he is a really great storyteller and had a lot of stories, but I, yep. I hope we, we touched on some of the things that our listeners will be interested in yeah. hearing your perspective so. on. I think so, actually. Well, it's always good to see you. All right. Thank you, John. Good to see you. Shift Bloom is a co-production of TCOM Studios and Actually Quite Nice, engineered by Tim Fall and hosted by me, Kristen Sorelli. Episodes are available wherever you download your podcasts and are made possible by listeners just like you. Please consider supporting our work by visiting us at patreon.com forward slash shift shift bloom. Shift Shift Bloom is made possible in part by the Prade Foundation, a nonprofit organization committed to improving the well-being of all through the use of personalized, timely interventions and provider of online training in the TCOM tools. TCOM is Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management, a comprehensive framework for improving the effectiveness of helping systems through person-centered care. Online at pradefoundation.org and at tcomconversations.org. And by the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky. Online at iph.uky.edu.